This is the Otaku Nate Show, episode 12, Lupin the Third, part one. More than just the birth of a thief. Lupin, 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 Lupin the Third, Lupin the Third, Lupin, 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 Lupin the Third, Lupin the Third. What is up, anime fans? Otaku Nate here with another installment of the Otaku Nate Show. The anime podcast where we talk about anime that we want to talk about. Joining me this week is Tim the Otaku Jock. Hello again. Hopefully a better appearance than last time. And one of my real life friends is joining me for this review. My name is Adam. What I do is a whole lot of nothing. And sometimes I watch anime. Eh, that's pretty much my life in a nutshell, although I work out in between watching anime and doing my uh, day job, which is assembling things. And today, we're going to tackle a big one. A show that, in my eyes, is one of the most important anime ever made, at least in terms of what it contributed to the medium. We are, of course, talking about Lupin the Third, the original series from 1971. Now, I assume that the three of us have all know Lupin from the same place, and that was from when it ran on Adult Swim. Absolutely. That is not the case, actually, for me. Oh, where did you first hear of Lupin? For me, actually, I had known of Lupin, I just sort of heard about it years ago, but I only really, like, truly got into it is uh, my first exposure, which is pretty, pretty bad experience, but also a pretty good one, was uh, Castle of Cagliostro. Well, it's not a bad place to start for Lupin, it's just but... It's different for Lupin. Yeah. Because he's very uh, tame in comparison. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, I watched that, and then I went on to Lupin the Third uh, Series 4, which was just coming out at the time. Okay, that's four, a, not a bad place to start. I think actually is probably my favorite of the bunch. Really? Yes, that or two. I'm not sure which. Well, two is great for that amazing English dub. Absolutely. I'm so happy that that dub is getting a new lease on life. I can't tell you how many times I just waste my time on YouTube finding uh, Lupin out of context videos with that old dub. Some of those classic lines. I just, I always wonder what it was like in those recording studios when they came up with some of those things. I'm going to quote one of those lines as the sign off thing, and you guys can't see it right now, but it's the name of our Skype chat. Don't spoil it for the good viewers. So, with Lupin the Third, I believe my first introduction to Lupin was actually the woman called Fujiko Mine, and I think I saw that before I watched The Castle of Cagliostro, and I don't know if that's a good entry point for Lupin or not. I never finished The Woman Called Fujiko Mine. I know my friend, who is also a Lupin fan that was supposed to be my original co-host, but... His schedule was swamped because of a move and some other stuff, so he had to pull out, but he did not like the woman called Fujikomini, but that's neither here or there. I've seen a few Lupons since then. Uh, did you guys see the newest Lupon uh, special, Part Goodbye five. Partner? Oh, no, I have not. I, I have not, and I kind of also regret that I haven't seen the uh, recent uh, movie trilogy that Takeshi Koike uh, worked on. I've seen two-thirds. Uh, the Takeshi Koike is good. The new special, Goodbye Partner? Also really good. I will say one of the best things about this is, of course, I I do have to give credit to Discotech Media because they have become what is essentially Lupin Central. They have basically made Lupin their bread and butter, and they do a fantastic job on all the releases of Lupin the Third, from the TV series to the movies to the specials. It, like... Even if the special or, or the series isn't all that great, like you know that with Discotech, you're going to get a quality product when Lupin is involved. They've pretty much forged a very special relationship with uh, Tokyo Movie Shinsha, but before we move any further, what is Lupin the Third about? Because we've talked about the sort of legend of Lupin. Which one of you people would like to say the premise of Lupin? I could go for that if uh, that's all right. Go right ahead. All right, I would say Lupin the Third. The title itself comes from 
a descendant of Arsène Lupin, a famous literary character from France, sort of like France's, France's uh, I guess, sort of counterpart to say Sherlock Holmes in England, basically. You know, Holmes is a detective, Lupin's a thief. Ar- Wasn't there Arsène- like crossover between Arsène Lupin and Sherlock Holmes? I don't know. There, there I probably there ha- was. There I probably think there have was. Been. That sounds familiar. There probably have been because they've, um, because I, again, I think that maybe once uh, Conan Doyle and the original author of the Lupin stories in France died, I think maybe there was probably some efforts by the estates to maybe do some crossovers. And you can kind of see some of that as well, kind of going on into the future, especially involving one particular crossover with Lupin, but we'll uh, we'll uh, put that to the side. But going back to it, uh, the series itself, Lupin the Third, Arsene Lupin the Third is what you would call the gentleman thief. Although I say that's the gentleman thief, but you know, you probably wouldn't get that from the, from at the very least the early episodes we'll of get to that series but what he is is that he is basically the super thief kind of like how james bond is the super spy lupon is the super thief he's able to basically break into anything he's able to escape out of anything depending on what happens the heist will either you know be successful or more often than not it'll go sideways and you know they'll wind up on the short end although they'll still have their freedom mm-hmm yeah, that's pretty much it. And uh, do we want to talk about the people that he goes on these heists with? Yeah, oh. that'd probably be good. That's not a bad idea at all. It's almost to the point now where you can almost identify, like, there's five main characters on that. We talked about Lupin. Uh, there's uh, Daisuke Jigen, his, uh, his hired gun. Best man right there. Uh, there's uh, Goemon Ishikawa, who is kind of on the side uh, for starters, but, you know, eventually becomes just a regular he's, member of the crew. He's the fish out of water of the group. Definitely. Or, as I call it, every Dragon Ball villain. That's uh, that's not too far off. Then there's uh, Fujiko Mine, the uh, femme fatale of the, uh, of the squad. Always seemingly playing both sides against the middle, always seemingly have her own agenda, but she she almost never comes off as malicious, at least how that's how I've always interpreted her. I'd say she's more playful. If she has any evil intent, it's always tongue-in-cheek. Would you say that? I would agree with that, because she's always looking out for herself. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's definitely true, especially, I would say, as well in parts four and five as well. But again, we'll leave that. And then, of course, the uh, <laughs> ever hapless Inspector Zenigata. Like, he is basically the the eternal uh, Wild E. Coyote to Lupin's Roadrunner. That's the best <laughs> way that I can describe it. <laughs> yeah. They're all, like, wonderful characters. And just watching them all play off each other is just absolutely wonderful. Jigen plays this wonderful straight man to Lupin's, wh- whatever you would call the other role of that. Would you say he's the Groucho to Lupin's Chico? I would. Yeah, I'd say that's accurate. It's interesting because their chemistry in the early episodes is different than later on, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Yeah. So that's the premise of Lupin. And honestly, this review, I think, is going to be different than my other ones, because usually we go down, we talk about the animation, the soundtrack, the characters, the stories, and we are going to do that, but we're looking at this more through a historical lens, because there's a lot more to Lupin the Third than it just being the debut of Lupin. And to understand its context, we need to go even further back to when Lupin was first created in the late 60s. Now, Lupin was created in the thick of what was called the Gekiga movement. Long story there, but essentially, it was a movement by several artists, including the likes of Yoshihiro Tatsumi, Goseki Kojima, and Kazuo Koike, to push for more mature content in terms of manga like, more realistic themes and sort of pulp stories, as opposed to the cartoonish sci-fi characters you got during the 50s. Lupin, I feel, is a product of the Gekiga movement, though I don't know if you'd call it Gekiga. I'm not qualified to speak on that matter. Personally, I don't think it fits in that, but I also think it's a creation that could have only spawned uh, from that era. Indeed. 
and it was created by a man named Kazuhiko Kato under the nom de plume of Monkey Punch. And if you go and read the original Lupin manga, try comparing it to something drawn by the likes of Osamu Tezuka, or Shotaro Ishinomori, or Go Nagai, or even some of the Gekiga artists. It looks nothing like what other manga looked like at the time. The artwork is very sketchy, it's very dirty, it looks more like something out of a bon dessiné comic, or in particular something out of Mad Magazine, which Monkey Punch said he was inspired by the illustrations of Mad Magazine when he drew Lupin the Third. It's an extremely, like you said, a sketchy style. It's it's one that it just never seemed to click with me when I read it when I was younger because when I was in high school, they started to get uh, manga in as an option to check out. One of the things they got was, I think, a Tokyo Pop reprint of the first volume. And even looking through it, I'm just like, wow, this is nothing like what I have seen even on television at that point. It, it felt almost completely unrecognizable to what I uh, had thought Lupin was at that moment. Yeah, if you only know Lupin through, like, the second series or Castle of Cagliostro or even the newer series, if you go and read that Lupin manga, you're in for a rude awakening as to who Lupin really is. Oh, no question. No mm -hmm. question. For the more sensitive people out there, that manga does not age well. I can no. stomach it, but some can't. Yeah, especially if you hold, like, Series 2 or the most recent ones in the high regard as to what Lupin is. I can definitely see how this is, the original manga could be just like, yeah, no, 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 I'm not. Uh, someone else can get some enjoyment out of this, but not me. But I'll tell you one person who did get enjoyment out of this manga. And according to Wikipedia, one of the people who spearheaded the project for Lupin was a guy named Gisaburo Sugi, who I'll talk about him when we talk about the people who worked on this show. He was interested in adapting Lupin into a TV series, and so he got together with several other animators and made a pilot film. Now, did either of you have time to watch the pilot movie? I did yes. not find a working copy. I managed to uh, uh, to watch it before we got on together, yes. So, how would you describe the pilot movie, Tim? I would say that the pilot movie is a rough, say, 12 and a half minute sort of introduction to the characters, the tone, and sort of the style of the show. I, I think that, you know, you get sort of this broad introduction of all the main characters and one other one that uh, we don't I don't think we ever saw again if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> yeah, it's very much a demo reel for Lupin and his gang. Uh, notably yes. Goemon who for those who may not be in the know, Goemon first started out as a rival to Lupin before eventually turning face and becoming one of Lupin's regular allies. Which, you know, I, I, like he said, <laughs> every Dragon Ball villain, but yeah. that's neither here nor there. <laughs> the animation for the small team they had apparently was only animated by four people. I gotta say, the animation for the pilot, it looks pretty good for the time. I mean, again, you're talking about, what would you say, that's like 1970 or 1969? when The that pilot was like 68, I think. So yeah, you're not that far away from like Speed Racer still at the time. So yeah, even something like that that feels like that it has much more motion to it is definitely an achievement especially for the small number of people that worked on it i gotta say the art style though is kind of funky i get that they're trying to be close to the manga but i don't know i do dig lupon's antonio Inoki caliber chin in <laughs> that pilot that, that 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 he looked very powerful with that no two ways <laughs> And he's also wearing his red jacket, which I don't know why they changed it, but I guess this is the first appearance of Red Jacket Lupin in anime. I don't know what they were going for with Fujiko's design, but she has a much more realistic-looking design to her. I, I was thinking about that, and it's just like, it, it just screams Bond Girl uh, to me. She looks like Pussy Galore. 
Yeah, I, I would say that's probably the best uh, the best way you could describe it. She has a more realistic look to her as opposed to her sort of shoujo-influenced design that we'd get once the TV series rolled around. I mean, 50-50 on whether or not you prefer one over the other. I definitely think that uh, the realistic style really jars in that Yeah, uh, it's off-putting. It's off-putting. Like, and it really fits. I think really her design, once you get into part one, fits a lot better. And that's pretty much the design they would go with with every subsequent Lupin. But seeing that early design, it's like, did he just trace over a picture of a Bond girl? Two more things to note about the pilot is that while all the Lupin gang is there, Lupin, Jigen, Fujiko, Goemon, and Zenigata, we also get a sixth character who was pretty much only in the pilot, and that is a guy named Kogoro Akechi. Sort of like, I guess, portraying it to be sort of like maybe a, you know, sort of like a mentor, I guess, maybe figure to Zenigata. Well, Kogoro Akechi was an actual popular fictional character in Japanese literature. Ah. I'd say he was Japan's answer to Sherlock Holmes, but I don't know enough about him. Adam, if that name sounds familiar, it Goro... does, because I, I know the whole thing. Goro Akechi from Persona 5 is named after this very detective. Exactly. <laughs> Delicious pancakes and all. You never know where they're going to pull their uh, character names from over at Atlas. <laughs> well, considering that Persona 5 is very heavily influenced by Lupin, it doesn't surprise me. I have yeah. it on I have it on my PS5, uh, PS4. I just uh, haven't. I've got so many other games. I'm still trying to get through. <laughs> yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm currently working my way through Tony Hawk's Proving Ground, which shows how current I am. <laughs> well, I'm still trying to work through my playthrough of Final Fantasy X. So, yeah. Me trying to play well, Ghost of Tsushima. One last thing to note: a majority of the voice cast, save for two is completely different in the pilot films. And we'll talk about that when we get to the Seiyuu. But once the pilot was completed, they shopped it around to several TV networks, and there were no takers. So they made a second pilot film, which I didn't watch the second one, but from what I can gather, it was animated in a 4x3 aspect ratio, as opposed to the uh, cinematic aspect ratio they used for the first one. Yeah, I only watched like a couple seconds of that uh, before I switched on over to watching the uh, first disc. But that, I think, is a fair a fair assessment to say that. A lot of the footage that you see in the first opening for Lupin is from this very pilot film. But eventually, three years after the first pilot was made, it was eventually picked up by Yomiuri TV. And it aired in the fall of 1971. And, oh boy... Let's talk about our initial impressions of this, and I sort of went in knowing that the early episodes were going to be different because of the director, but my god, I did not expect these early episodes to be so dark in terms of content. Yeah, no, I get that. It's dark, and I think that's something, like, I didn't have enough time to get up to episodes down the line. But I think one of the things I I noticed as well about these uh, or about these early episodes is that they feel a little slower paced uh, than what maybe we're used to in regards to that. Yeah, there's very well, little in the way of Lupin's signature comedy than what we get later on, not just in this series but in every subsequent Lupin installment. Adam, you wanted to say something? Well, I was gonna say I think one part of that whole thing of the tone is, I, I hate to talk about it, but dear lord, that opening. <laughs> you know... <laughs> because when they changed it later in the series, I found myself a lot more hyped for episodes than sitting through, Lupa! Lupa! <laughs> you know, like I, didn't li I didn't like that opening, and I thought it was one of the worst of the 70s. It has grown on me, but... Yeah, if you're expecting what Yuji Ono would do for the show, oh, you're in for a nasty surprise with that it, first opening. It is nowhere near. Like, you have an idea in your head of what Lupin music is? Sorry. Oh, this, yeah, no. this ain't it, Chief. 
Well, if you compare it to other anime openings at the time, like they're very uplifting and very triumphant. Even the grittier openings like Star of the Giants or Ashtano Joe, like Lupin is very downbeat. It, it very much has that Bond opening feel to it. Definitely. And the visuals in that, while I feel are a bit on the clumsy side, like you've got some sex appeal, you've got explosions, guns being fired with actual gunfire. It's not a very coherent opening. I, I definitely would agree there. But you have to put this in perspective. Like, imagine you're a Japanese teenager in 1971, and you're watching this for the first time. It stands out like a sore thumb compared to what else was going on at the time. When you had shows that were mostly meant for children, or shows that were meant for families. That is true. But Very still, true. that second opening is what? a lot better. Which second opening? The one not where the series two, not the didn't 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 didn't. No, no, no I know, I know. I meant like because there's two more like... openings in this. There's the one where it's Lupin doing the narration. And the third one is another the third version. One's the song one. Yeah, Lupin, Lupin, Lupin. That one. that one. At least that one's like upbeat. It's Even still if it's not amazing, but it's mostly just stock footage for that one, and I I don't like stock footage openings. Oh well, yeah, no, <laughs> I, I feel that. That that that's a uh, that's that's a universal. to the first one though, I can get through that one. But, but the one it, scene that sort of popped out for me when I knew that this wasn't the Lupin that we know, at least in terms of what we got here in the West. In the first episode, Fujiko is kidnapped by this organization called Scorpion and held hostage on a table, James Bond style. The main villain, I forget his name, is describing the course by holding a pointer over Fujiko's assets. Describing the course in a very sexual way. Later on in the same episode, several arms pop out of the table and start tickling Fujiko to torture her. And in one scene, we see her writhing in agony, I guess? Sexual arousal? And Probably you can agony. see her nipples. Like, outlines of her nipples. It's certainly a different, although... I mean, they obviously uh, must have enjoyed it somewhat because, you know, if you weren't aware, they actually did it as as part of the tail end of uh, part five. They actually or for like the 50th anniversary, they actually basically did like a redone version yeah, of this episode for the special, which includes a redone version of that scene in particular. That scene is also homaged in Jigen's gravestone where Fujiko is set to infiltrate a secret organization, but is kidnapped, although that scene is a lot more graphic in the special Thank You Takeshi Koike. I would not uh, expect anything less. And the same thing goes in episode two, where we see the closest thing Lupin has to an arch nemesis with the introduction of Paikal, the magician. Because, oh boy, Fujiko in that episode, uh... <laughs> Uh, Pycall assaults her. Yeah. Yeah. This is really gritty. Even by the standards of 71. I don't think you could say that there was any anime that came before this that had content this graphic. Like, in the uh, early episodes, there's not just nudity and Fujiko being put in sexual peril, but... There are just showers and showers and showers of bullets being fired. And a lot of people get shot in this. And for the Pycall episode, I'm gonna spoil it, Pycall gets burned alive! Yeah, I mean, and and you know what? That's not even talking about, say, the, uh, the end of the Scorpion episode. Oh, the very first yeah. episode, where an entire stand's or tower at a racetrack winds up getting uh, fallen after Lupin blows a bunch of the cars up. Yeah, he blows up an entire group of people. It's a, of course they're fine. It's Looney Tunes logic. Yeah, it's Looney Tunes logic. But I I would also have at to at the same imagine... time Lupin still straight up just kills people. <laughs> I I mean, but again, I'm also thinking about it. Like you're barely a decade out from the disaster at Le Mans in the late '50s. 
And you throw a scene like that up in there, especially, you know, not only that, you're also referencing in the episode, even though it's not them in particular, you're also referencing some of the uh, F1 greats of the day in that. Yeah, in the very first few minutes, they name drop a bunch of famous F1 drivers, and I know nothing about Formula One. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the one that jumped out at me was Jackie Stewart, but yeah, yeah I, knew, I, mean, I know I, that name. Yeah, that's the one that I know, but that's probably because I know he did, like, you know, commentary work for IndyCar later on. Of course, my favorite of these early episodes is episode four. That's yeah, the four one. Four is of yes. all the early episodes, <laughs> except for seven, I, I would argue, is probably the best in the series of the first one. But four is, like, right up there. Effectively, Lupin is put on death row, and mm-hmm. he's being held in a straitjacket. And if you think you know that how this is going to end for a Lupin series, you, you don't. don't. Like you it gets don't. really dark, and it seems that Lupin isn't gonna make it out of this one alive. Naturally, he does, but I'm not gonna spoil how he gets out of it. No, but there is it, some actual tension in that episode. It, it's it's it is a funny episode, but it, I, I would say that maybe a lot of the, the way humor, it happens. Yeah. I would say good payoff. I, I would say that a lot of the humor uh, in the early episodes, it would mainly focus. I say, maybe you you could call it black humor. Basically, yeah. it's very much a dark comedy compared to the sort of slapstick humor you get in season two of Lupin. But when talking about these episodes, though, we got to mention one thing: these episodes look great. Oh yeah. Like, I absolutely love the look of 1971 Lupin. It has the right mixture of both grittiness and smoothness. Like, I reviewed Kashan for my third episode, and we talked about just how gritty and sort of dirty the animation looked there. Lupin the Third 71 looks amazingly smooth. It really does. Like, especially when you're... Like, there are still, like, those still frame shots sometimes and some of the some of the recycled shots. But overall, and again, like you said, you're talking about a series from 1971. It looks remarkably smooth by comparison. I just love the color scheme, though. I don't want to say the colors are loud, but it's a mix of bold and psychedelic. It definitely pops, even when you're, like, especially when you're watching it. That shade of green they use for Lupin's green jacket. Oh, yeah, you can, you can identify it without problem. My favorite color, though, in the entire show, though, I love Inspector Zenigata's bright orange trench coat. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And his purple striped hat. I mean, we are all familiar with the brown uh, jacket that he has in later series, but this is, you know, it, it really jumps out at you when you when you see him on screen. I want that coat. Now I get you with the colors. I think it's not as smooth to the point where, like, if you watch a lot of anime, you're going to think it's anything impressive, but, like, definitely for the time. It's it looks like, a lot better than some... a cut above. It definitely looks a lot better than some Tatsunoko or Toei shows from around the time. And I'm not exactly. knocking the animation in those, no. but Lupin is just a cut above the rest. Yeah, for the time it, period, definitely. For the time period, without question. It's just really fun to watch, yeah. How would you compare it to, say, the second season of Lupin? Because the grittiness is still there, but the colors are a lot more muted. They're a lot more muted, but I think... Kind of like how we've talked about how tone of the show. I really think that the muted colors uh, in part two kind of really help with the tone, making it feel like that it's a bit more, you know, upbeat, a little more silly than, say, the these original episodes where it feels like maybe the bright colors feel like that it's really high contrast of the bright colors is really meant to sort of be, you know, s- sort of at odds with sort of the uh, dark Uh, stories that are going on it feels like something out of a french comic from the 1960s like lucky luke or asterix i'd say that's a pretty i'd say that's a, a a good way to describe it and this is mostly due to the fact that you had several very talented people working on this if you go through the animators there's a lot of significant credits in this some that i was able to pull from anime news network 
Yoshifumi Kondo worked on this show. He would go on to be a future key animator and director for Ghibli. Famously directed Whisper of the Heart, died tragically in a car accident. Osamu Kobayashi, who would go on to direct things like Kimagure Orange Road. He didn't work on this series, but the pilot was helmed by Gisaburo Sugi, who would go on to direct Night on the Galactic Railroad, Touch, and most famously, Street Fighter II the movie. <laughs> and one of the most famous and greatest directors who ever lived, Osamu Dezaki, and his brother Satoshi Dezaki, did storyboards for this. Osamu Dezaki's many credits include things like Ashitano Joe, The Rose of Versailles, Dear Brother, Golga 13, and while it is disputed on this one, Mad Bull 34. That's uh, <laughs> that last one. That's a, that's a heck of a credit to have. <laughs> His brother Satoshi is credited, but I've also seen him credited, so again, it's disputable. But a lot of these animators on this show would go on to work on many significant projects at the time. And if we're on that subject, there are two others in particular. We'll uh, get to that. And I'm sure we will. Absolutely. <laughs> the soundtrack. What did you guys think of the soundtrack? Because Adam, I know you loved that amazing opening. Boy, was it amazing. Uh, <laughs> the soundtrack generally falls in lines with my thoughts for the opening of i'm not a huge fan of it some of it's solid it gets the job done but there's a lot of it that's like the same droning voice that sings the opening would you like to know Lupin in the background would you like to know who sang that opening please do the guy who sang that is a guy who is still active today it's a jazz singer by the name of charlie kosei he was the singer for the Tezuka film A Thousand and One Nights. He sang the opening for Mononoke. But the one thing you will know him best for if you played the game, he sang the song K Sara Sara off the Katamari Damashi soundtrack. Oh, jeez. You know the yeah. one. I know you love me. I wanna word you up into my life. Let's roll up to be a single star in the sky. I hear you calling me. I wanna word you up into my life. Let's love up to make a single star in the sky. Generally speaking, my thoughts on the soundtrack are it's not bad, but it certainly hasn't aged that well. I would um, however, I would argue that later on, it definitely sort of starts to come into its own more. The soundtrack sort of gets better with time, although it very much has that, like, 50s cartoon sort of aesthetic. It's it's definitely cut above stock music. It's definitely a more memorable soundtrack than Kashan's. I'll give it that. Oh, well, yeah, but that's not much of a, not it's not much a, high, of a high point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the music, it's not bad, but it's very redundant. It is, yeah. and I and I think and I think that's one of the reasons why it feels like the pace of some of those early episodes really feel very slow. Especially if you have it in your mind what Lupin is, like the pace of these early episodes is kind of a, a real rude awakening. There's a lot of vocal songs that are sung by Charlie Kose, but my absolute favorite of them all is "Nice Guy Lupin." The song that tells you that Lupin, he's a nice man, but he's cool. You know, he uses Walter. Yeah. He smiles. And he gets angry. Sometimes. <laughs> but he's a groovy guy. Yeah. Thanks, Charlie. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> he was doing his best impression of William Shatner. <laughs> it sounds like something. It sounds like a Shatner song. Oh, jeez. The machine cries. Bang, bang. Uh, uh. Yeah, the soundtrack isn't bad, but it's nothing compared to the magic that Yuji Ono would get weave when he was given the baton for the second series amen to that <laughs> mm -hmm. 
as for the composer, Takeo Yamashita, this is really his only notable credit. Most of the other stuff he's composed is stuff of no real significance. And unfortunate. I mean, not everyone can uh, come from something and bat a thousand like that, I guess. And now let's move on to the voice cast, the part where I bore everybody. So I mentioned that in the pilot film, the pilot film had completely different voices for multiple characters, save for two, I would think. By the time the show was a full TV series, we had three-fifths of the classical cast. The only seiyuu that wouldn't show up in the first series were Eiko Masuyama, the eventual voice of Fujiko. She did voice Fujiko in the pilot, but in this series, she's voiced by Yukiko Nikaido. Her only other notable role would be Anna in Marco from the Apennines to the Andes. Goemon would eventually be voiced by Makio Inoue, the voice of Captain Harlock. But for this series, he's voiced by Chikao Otsuka, the father of famous seiyuu Akio Otsuka, who we know as Solid Snake. And I bring up the Solid Snake reference because Chikao Otsuka was the voice of Big Boss in Metal Gear Solid. Wow. He, he also voiced Dr. Robotnik all the way up until his passing, and he was the voice of Xehanort in the Kingdom Hearts series. If you know him from any anime series, he's the voice of Gold Roger in One Piece. As for the seiyuu that would be mainstays in the series, Lupin is voiced by Yasuo Yamada, and he would voice Lupin all the way up until his death in 1994. While you wouldn't know him from any other significant anime, he was the Japanese dubbing voice for Clint Eastwood and for Roddy McDowell in the Planet of the Apes movies. Oh, wow. That's, uh, man. <laughs> and he was the Japanese voice of Kermit the Frog. Ha! <laughs> I mean, I guess. Inspector Zenigata was voiced by Goro Naya, who, again, would voice... Zenigata up until his passing. He's perhaps most famous for being Captain Okita in Star Blazers, and also the voice of Shocker from the original Kamen Rider. He's been the narrator in a couple of things, namely in Kishan, and he was the narrator in Golden Boy. And finally, there's the voice of Jigen, Kiyoshi Kobayashi. Kiyoshi Kobayashi has been a seiyuu since the original 1963 Astro Boy. That's insane. <laughs> he has been the voice of Jigen in practically every single iteration of Lupin III. He was the voice of Jigen in both pilot films and carried over to the TV series. He is still voicing Jigen to this day. He is 87 years old, and he has been voicing Jigen for 52 years now. I would say that's a record, but that record is currently held, at least recognized by Guinness anyway, by the woman who was the voice actress for Saze-san. I think uh, squarely for episodes, that would probably have it, but man, to have that length of a career, that's something special. The fact that Kiyoshi Kobayashi has been going on for this long, like, he has earned those Lifetime Achievement Awards. And Amen. even to this day, he's still doing voice work for modern anime series. He even did some dub work for Clint Eastwood in Japan. Oh my goodness. But that's it for Seiyuu. Now, we talked about how these early episodes for Lupin are dark and more akin to something out of a pulp novel, would you say? Yeah. Uh, definitely. It definitely has that uh, grittier feel the way that you said it. Not hashtag grim and gritty the way so many of the way so many Snyder cultists always, you know, seem to want their movies to be. Uh, but we're talking about just something that feels like very earthy, very, you know, personal. That's what it feels like. One thing mm -hmm. I forgot to mention when talking about how the characters are portrayed, like, you can see that in the chemistry, because Lupin and Jigen, their interactions are completely different. 
than what mm. you see nowadays. Because Jigen is sort of like this wisecracking foil to Lupin. But in these earlier episodes, he's more of Lupin's like confidant or right-hand man. Mm-hmm. That's what it really feels like, yeah. Because in the later episodes, he's more like, eh, are you sure about that, Lupin? Uh, I don't know, man. Uh, okay, yeah, sure, whatever, go ahead, yeah. But in these episodes, he's like, don't worry, Lupin, I got your back. <laughs> Pretty much. And another character that feels completely different in these early episodes is Inspector Zenigata. Because he's a lot more determined and straight-laced in these episodes. Yeah, very much so. He's not the... Uh... Yeah, I made the uh, Roadrunner uh, Coyote comparison earlier when describing them. It really doesn't feel like that. This actually feels almost like he's more Peter Gunn than Inspector Gadget. Yes, I think that's a I think that's a great way to put it. I think while it is a bit later in the first season, the the final episode really sort of shows that in the way that he reacts. Like he straight up brings up, look, I've caught this man like several times and he always escapes. And his job's on the line, and you feel that for him. Yeah, and apparently we talked about the graphic content, the slow pacing, the lack of humor, etc. And because of this, and I'm not saying these early episodes are bad, but you have to tamper your expectations. Absolutely. But they were not well received when they first came out. Lupin, in its initial run, was a complete flop in the ratings. And the producers, I believe the people at Yomiuri Television approached the initial director, a guy by the name of Masaki Osumi, to tone down the content, to try and make it more family-friendly. But he was such a fan of the manga that he apparently refused. And thus, he was booted from the project. Now, before we transition into who took over, I just want to talk about Osumi's resume, because prior to this, he directed several anime, including Obake no Kyutaro and The Valley of the Moomin. And yes, there were Moomin anime, and they were extremely popular in Japan. He would return to direct two of the Lupin specials, Voyage to Danger and The Secret Files, and he would direct some things called Munchen no Michi and the movie Hashire Melos. But with Osumi being kicked off the project, it probably would have meant that Lupin would have been cancelled then and there, because it was an absolute flop. Were it not for somebody named Yasuo Otsuka, the animation director. And to talk about the significance of Yasuo Otsuka would take too long on this podcast. But for Japanese animators, Yasuo Otsuka was sort of the man who wrote the book both in style and in technique. Like, he would spend days tracing over American animation drawings and putting them to paper because he had such a passion for the medium of animation. And he trained many significant animators and directors in his time working in the industry. Two of those trainees would be the ones who took over for Masaki Ozumi. And those two people who would helm Lupin would be two up-and-comers named Isao Takahata and Hayao Miyazaki. And there we go. <laughs> yep. These two men had experience under their belts working for Toei on things like Alakazam the Great, Puss in Boots, and Hole's Prince of the Sun. And they were pissed coming off of Toei feeling that they had been screwed over. So here they have this task of taking this anime series that's floundering and trying to retool it into something a little more palatable to a mainstream anime audience. And once they take over, the change is obvious. How would you describe Takahata and Miyazaki's episodes compared to the early ones? Fast paced, a lot more like humorous, lighthearted. There's still stuff on the line, but... It's certainly, the tone is less heavy, and it's more trying to crack a joke than anything else, while still maintaining, like, a sense of adventure. I unfortunately didn't get to the, uh, get to those episodes in time for this, so unfortunately it's, uh, but I think from what I do remember, it's 
basically what he said. You can feel that it's a little more, a little more sprightly, a little more spry. Uh, the pace is definitely picked up. I, I definitely want to go and watch those for my, watch them for myself uh, to see the evolution. But at least from the couple that I watched like years ago, maybe when I first got the set, uh, yeah, you can definitely tell that it's a much quicker paced show and you're starting to get what we would recognize as Lupin, but wouldn't really come into complete fruition up until like, say, Cagliostro in part two. But they pretty much took out most of the adult content. And that's not to say that it's completely neutered. There's still some stuff there that mature audiences can appreciate, but you can tell that they made Lupin a more family-friendly character. And that's mm -hmm. to the show's benefit. Agreed. But Lupin, as a character this time around, he's less of a pulp hero and more the gentleman thief we come to know and love. Because he's not stealing things for the sake of stealing things. Like, he has a goal in mind. Yeah, he's got a goal in mind, and he's usually trying to screw around with with another bad guy. Only this time, like, a real bad guy, I should say. In this case, and I'm cribbing a little bit from uh, Kaiser Beam's video on Lupin the Castle Cagliostro, but Lupin is more of a man of the people in these episodes. Because he's stealing from people who he feels don't deserve these treasures that they have. Like, they don't truly appreciate it. To them, it's just one of their possessions, He's stealing to show them how it really feels to have something so precious in your possession. The old don't know what you got till it's gone sort of principle, if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I feel the episode that most embodies this is in episode 8, where Lupin steals a deck of cards that belongs to Napoleon from this evil rich guy, who shows up again later on, uh, but with a different name. The episodes also are a lot more comedic, and there's a lot more chemistry between Lupin and Jigen. I already mentioned Jigen in these later episodes being more of a comedic foil to Lupin. But they also changed Inspector Zanagata to the lovable, bumbling police inspector with a high sense of justice. Which I think you could say is definitely the ben to the show's benefit, because he he's a little... Like like you said, uh, James Gunn, but I was also about to say a little, I won't go as far to say Dirty Harry, but you could definitely imagine at least a little bit that maybe one or two things go the wrong way. He could start going outside the rules. I wouldn't say Zenigata is a loose cannon in the earlier episodes. I'd compare him more to Joe Friday. That's probably a better way to put it. He's this cop who has a very strong moral code and a sense of justice. Like, he wishes to see the criminals thrown into the slammer. I already mentioned the episode where Lupin is put on death row, and in that episode, you really see the sort of dark character that Zenigata is. He's more of a villain to Lupin than a rival. Also, one other thing that they changed with Lupin, and it's more of a subtle change, is his car. Because in the early episodes, he drives a Mercedes SSK, and I love that car. I just want to say, I want that car. Because I love those sort of long-nosed, 1930s-style vehicles with the open wheels. I oh, would yeah. love to drive one of those through uh, Sussex County on a hot, sunny day. But around episode 16, the Diamond Heist... That's where you see Lupin driving around in his signature Fiat 500. And the reason why this change was made was because, again, Miyazaki and Takahata wanted Lupin to be more of a people's character. And in such, they get, he gets a car that's a little more economical. And one that's become iconic. Like, for I one of Lupin's anniversaries, Fiat 500 made an exact model of Lupin's famous Fiat, because... Lupin is huge in Italy. I mean, they based uh, part four completely in Italy, for heaven's sakes. <laughs> and part five in France. Gee, I wonder why. Exactly. <laughs> and I feel these later episodes, once Miyazaki and Takahata take over, is where the show finds its traction. There's nothing wrong with these early episodes, 
but you can slowly see Lupin evolving into the character that's more akin to what you see in Seasons 2. Not so much Season 3, but you can definitely see Lupin develop that goofball personality he has in those <laughs> episodes. Well, Season 3 is a beast almost unto itself, honestly. Yeah. Tim, hey, I know you have adventure is great. Tim, I know you haven't seen the back half of the show for a long time, but do you recall any episodes being your favorite? I would probably say, you know, the Diamond Heist is probably, uh, it would probably rate up there. Oh, yeah. It's, it reminds me of a really good Looney Tunes cartoon. Absolutely. Effectively, it's one heist gone awry, and Lupin (laughs) and Jigen constantly have to find their way out of different situations to try and keep the heist going until it peters out. It's almost like, say, you have that, which is kind of a simple, and then in part two, one of my, I would say maybe the Lanch, Lair of the Landshark is probably the closest equivalent to that from early on. So that that one, where, where they're being chased by these uh, homing missiles. I like the one that's actually relevant to today, where Lupin and company go to a beauty contest being held by a bunch of super rich people, only to bust it up and find that it's actually a sex trafficking ring. Wouldn't you know it. (laughs) And this was well before we knew who Jeffrey Epstein was. Oh, wasn't it? (laughs) Yep. I wonder if Jimmy Savile was a part of that ring too. Oh, boy. (laughs) But my absolute favorite episode from the back half is one that plays into the lore of the actual Lupin character. And that is which third generation will win. And it's an episode where Lupin, the descendant of Arson Lupin, takes on the descendant of Lupin's arch-rival, Inspector Ganimald. And in that episode, Ganimald teams up with Zenigata to thwart Lupin. And what I love about it is that Lupin thinks of everything to try and outsmart Ganimard. He tries disguising himself to infiltrate the storehouse filled with artifacts. It doesn't work. He tries exploiting a weakness in the security system. It doesn't work. And I won't ruin how Lupin outsmarts Ganimard, but let's just say I was rolling on the floor laughing at the climax. I'll have to keep my eyes open for that. Oh yeah, episode 19 it is. It's my favorite of the whole bunch. And there are a lot of memorable episodes. Like, Takahata and Miyazaki take the series from being decent if flawed to being a true classic. And these final 16 or so episodes are very emblematic of the Lupin we would come to know and love. Mm Mm-hmm. Definitely. And with everything I have said about this show... I don't think it's hyperbole to say that Lupin the Third is one of the most important anime ever created. Would you agree with me? Yeah. I would absolutely agree. Because we mentioned all the significant people that worked on the show. We mentioned that this was a major stepping stone in the careers of Miyazaki and Takahata. But this was one of the first series that really pushed the envelope for adult content, at least in the earlier episodes. Like, it's toned down in the back half, but you still get some of it. Mm-hmm. And were it not for Lupin, the next year we wouldn't get Devilman, which really started pushing the envelope. And the year mm-hmm. after that, we got both Kishan and Cutie Honey, which really pushed the envelope for both violence and sexual content. And the ball would just keep rolling throughout the 70s with anime becoming a lot more mature, ultimately leading to things to the end of the decade like The Rose of Versailles and Mobile Suit Gundam that were clearly meant for a more adult audience. But we've gone too far. Now Netflix thinks anime is edgy. Oh, that documentary will have its day. It really wants you to think anime anime is edgy, like I'm really badly. Not even gonna. Uh, I'm not even going to honor that with with a response. It doesn't deserve it. Good. Well, all I'm going to say is, well, all I'm gonna say is, remember, kids. Chibi Reviews says that anime made before Evangelion was all kids shows. 
I post a lot about that on social media, and I am not over it. You shouldn't be over it. Chibi, you fucking idiot. Ugh. How does this guy have 400,000 subs again? Gotta be doing something wrong. Well, then again, you've also got... Well, you you say that, but then morons like Hero Hey wind up getting 300,000 thinking that, you know, a collection of Japanese studios uh, banding together to post stuff on YouTube, not any different from what Toei is doing posting their tokusatsu stuff, is somehow going to bring down Funimation. But unfortunately... But unfortunately, even with these changes and the evolution of Lupin, it wasn't enough to save the series. And it was cancelled after only 23 episodes. And oh boy, that 23rd episode. It does oh, yeah. not feel like a proper finale to the series. It doesn't, but it has a nice sort of like send-off and connects everything well enough. It does. Satisfied. It doesn't have the stakes that a final episode should have. No, I mean when no, you, I get that. when when you compare it to something like the part two uh, finale, mm -hmm. or even the finale of Gundam, which was also canceled early. Although, like Gundam, Lupin has quite a few parallels, namely that it was canceled three episodes before its series finale, and then once it went into syndication it started to gain a bit of a following. And six years later, in 1977, Tokyo Movie Shincha would put out a second series of Lupin. And that would become one of the most popular anime of the decade, running for over 150 episodes. Including two, including two episodes directed by Miyazaki himself, which are, honest to God, highlights. And yeah. in 79, we'd get the Castle of Cagliostro, which was, which Kaiser Beams described as Miyazaki's send-off to Lupin. Like, not to Lupin as a character, but his time it, with Lupin. Yeah, I can definitely see that. I've watched that movie several times. It really does feel like it's a, you know, hey, this is how I'm going to go out with this guy. I'm going to do everything I've ever wanted with him, and mm -hmm. he's going to be exactly who I want to be in this. It feels like a real send-off from a director to, uh, to a character. It's mm -hmm. the send-off that he never got with Lupin during part one. Bingo. And if you watch Lupin Part 1 and then end with the Castle of Cagliostro, it's very much a full circle journey. That's actually a great way to put it. And I would say that's a great way to watch the series. Watch all of Part 1, then go to the Castle of Cagliostro, and then watch any random episode of Part 2 since they're all standalones. Like, you could start at the beginning, but that is one of the great things. It's, it's almost like Urusei Yatsura, in a way, where you can, once you know the principles, you can jump around to any episode, and you're gonna, you're gonna be entertained. And there's a lot of gold in the mine of Lupin, and I hope to cover as much of it as I can. We're probably not gonna cover the second season of Lupin, because it's 150-plus episodes long. I believe it's... Is that a challenge, Nate? It's nine episodes longer than Hunter Hunter. Oh, listen, I watched like 18 hours of Hunter Hunter in a row. I think I can take Lupin part two. Again. <laughs> I wish I had that sort of time management and attention span. I don't Ditto. anymore. <laughs> That's the problem. <laughs> there was a time, though. Yeah, yeah, that time was college for me. Not anymore. <laughs> but a lot of the other Lupin stuff, the specials, the movies, it's all in play. Like, part three of Lupin is doable, since that's only 50 episodes and a beast unto itself. There's also, uh, there's the also, uh... You can play that anytime. <laughs> and it will always be amazing. It's the time to play the game. And part four and part five are also up for review. Woman Called Fujiko Mine as well. I'm hoping to cover I, as can, much Lupin as I can. Can can we do the blood spread of Goemon? Goemon fighting... A lumberjack is the single greatest thing that has ever happened on this world. I think the Takeshi Koike trilogy of Lupin will probably be its own episode. I would suggest as well the uh, crossovers with Detective Conan, but you know, that's probably just me being a fanboy there. There's also the live-action movies. That's nope. true. <laughs> nope. Nope. And eventually, when it gets uh, released out here in the Weast... 
we get good old-fashioned Lupin the Third, the first. Oh, yeah, that it really just shows how far CGI and anime has come, and how much of an embarrassment Polygon Pictures is to the industry. Yep. Yep. And before we wrap things up here, let's end with a bit that I totally did not steal from Dave Merrill over at Cornpone Flicks. Let's compare what was going on with Japanese animation in 71 to what was happening in American animation from the same year. So, Oh, oh this ought to be fun. So in 71, we had Lupin the Third Part 1. Uh, we also had Anderson Tales, the 71 mm -hmm. version of Gegege no Kitaro, and uh, Marvelous Melmo, a Tezuka creation, technically the first magical girl with a transformation, but it's mostly just Melmo takes a pill to make her grow older, and Tezuka effectively created that series to teach little girls about puberty. Though Cutie Honey is credited as the first official magical girl with a transformation, but it's kind of debated there. It's re it's really uh, from how you're saying it. It's very much sort of like how, you know, Astro Boy is sort of like the popular answer. But you could probably I guess fillet that a little bit more to figure out, you know, where the actual answer is for like the first modern show. I <laughs> think Astro Boy counts as the first TV anime, but compared to what America was getting in '71, we got such wonderful things like Archie's TV Funnies. How <laughs> oh, goody. Help! It's the Hair Bear Bunch, a.k.a. We Bear Bears for Boomers. Yikes. The Funky Phantom, a.k.a. Scooby-Doo Ripoff number six. The Jackson 5 cartoon. And everybody's favorite iteration of the Flintstones, the Pebbles and Bam Bam Show. Uh, you know the yikes. one where it's all about Pebbles and Bam Bam, but they're teenagers now, and somehow all the old Flintstone characters have not aged? Yeah. <laughs> no, you're right about that. Even as a uh, kid, yeah. I knew that that cartoon was lame. Look, I don't want to go too hard, especially since, you know, Joe Ruby just passed away, uh, uh, like yesterday as we're recording this. Oh, but... I didn't know that. Mm, yeah, that that was one. Like, I mean, of course, everyone was popularly mm -hmm. saying, you know, creator of Scooby Doo, but at the same time, I, I think that something that I've always thought when it comes to the old Hanna Barbera, because I've seen a lot of Saber Sparks vids on the subject. Yes, they, there were so many formulas, there were so many things that they stuck to, but at the very least, whether or not those shows were good, it was at the very least an interesting time, if nothing else. It was the interesting time. It was also a dark time. It really was. Like, that's why I wanted to keep the quality kind of separate from that. Because, you know, again, by that point, the Flintstones had already run its course. And so had the original Scooby-Doo series. So it's like, at that point, you were just basically already running on formulas. But compared to what was happening in Japan, 71 was a slow year for anime. But the decade is still young. Once we get to 72 and 73, that's when the ball really gets rolling. Here's hoping for 2020, once we get to 22. Uh. But that's gonna do it for this episode. Do you guys have any final thoughts on Lupin the Third Part 1? It, it's a worthwhile watch. Just know what you're getting in for, for say, those first half a dozen to eight episodes. It's definitely not what you uh, would expect, but... I would also say that it's a absolutely, I think, a required show, especially if you consider yourself a Lupin fan. Get acquainted with his roots and understand where this guy came from. I think that part in the opening where he said Lupin the Third really spoke to me. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's a pretty good watch, especially the later half. The pace really picks up, but there are some real good ones in the beginning. Episodes four and seven would be highlights. I think seven might have actually been the first Miyazaki episode. It was. But seven was one of my favorite ones. Definitely give at least a few of them a watch. See if it's for you. It's not that it's still in print and it's not that expensive to get. I'm taking a look. It's available on Right Stuff right now for like 45 bucks if you want to get the set. Has the full series, has the pilot films. And of course, as I've always said, Discotech puts a lot of love and care uh, into their Lupin releases, liner notes, commentaries, you name it, they got it. And say you are having trouble watching it. Say, after all this, you're sitting down and you're watching it, it's not for you. 
I have one final suggestion that might help. Just just throw on the part two opening or just any other Lupin opening. Just <laughs> Watch the, the dub for part two. Yes, yeah, absolutely. That. That'll help. That and I believe those may be available streaming somewhere, but I'm not they sure. They are, which yes. Platform. All of Lupin. Well, most of Lupin, the TV series, are available streaming on Crunchyroll, on Amazon Prime, and I think Hulu too. I know that part two was on Hulu for a while. I don't know if that's come down, but yeah. And I should also point out that Amazon Prime, decent prices as well. If you wanted to get like, if you wanted to buy the series digitally, I actually just bought uh, part five uh, off of Amazon Prime for like 20 bucks. And that also includes the 50th anniversary special too. Yeah, part one was never dubbed into English, but I wish it was, especially with the classical cast. Tony Oliver as Lupin, uh, Richard Epcar as Jigen, Michelle Ruff as Fujiko, Lex Lang as Goemon, and while he wasn't the voice of Zenigata in part two, Doug Airholes does a great job filling in the role of whoever the actor was for part two. I, for I think it's Dan Martin, but I forgot. I think it was, I think that's who it is, but yeah. Uh, but I definitely think that if they would have wanted to do that, they probably you know, would have had to do something like say what Funimation did when they uh, redubbed Escaflone. They would have probably had to run a, some kind of a crowdfunding campaign for that. Indeed. Well, they're doing an experimental dub for Cobra, so who knows. But as for my thoughts, Lupin the Third Part 1, I say even if you don't like those early episodes, you can skip ahead to around episode 7 or 8 when Miyazaki and Takahata take over. I say even beyond its quality, it's worth watching for its historical value. I would agree 100%. I also agree. Like, there's plenty of anime that were probably really good for their time, but don't hold up all that well. I say Lupin Part 1 holds up wonderfully. I, I think it holds up a lot better than uh, you would think a, a show with, especially those early episodes with the kind of content that they are. They definitely hold up a lot better than I think uh, some people would give it credit for. I definitely yeah. would say it's more worthwhile a watch than Kashan, and I like Kashan and recommend Kashan. But Kashan gets a little bit predictable with every episode. But with Lupin, you don't know how Lupin's going to get out of each situation, and that's what makes yeah. it such a great watch. Absolutely. But that's going to do it for Lupin the Third Part One. Next time on the Otaku Nate Show. We jump from the 70s into the 80s and a little bit into the 90s, too, with a look at a character that has quite a bit of a cult following and has had multiple iterations of his series and whose manga is still running even to this day as we look at the OAVs of The Giver, both the 1980s one-shot and the OAV series that ran from 89 to 92. And as a bit of a spoiler, I already have this episode in the can. I just have to edit it first. So watch the space next Sunday at 7. You'll probably see it there. So until then, this is Otaku Nate. This is Tim the Otaku Jock. This is Adam. I'm a dude. And we're signing off and saying, who wants chicken nuggets? Okay.